Hey, it's Luke. Today on the pod, we're talking about the crime beat and the real harm we cause in people's lives when reporters report about crime the way many, if not most, media outlets in America have always and still do report on crime. Often on the pod, we're talking about an in-depth piece of reporting or a series of reports or some expert who's drawing on decades of knowledge. Today's episode, though, was spurred on by just two tweets, 95 total words. Back on May 27th, in the wake of the Uvalde massacre, local journalist Rebecca White, a reporter and host at Spokane Public Radio, stepped up and did something I have not seen a lot of other reporters do. She questioned the institution and one of its longest-running practices. I read those tweets in the interview, but I'm going to read them here too to set the table. Here's the first. She writes, There are a lot of crime stories I wrote when I was 22 that I wish were never published. Interviews I was pressured into getting by deadline, police reports I regurgitated. Most of the things I wrote on the crime beat I don't think really helped anybody. So what's going on here? A lot of media companies, especially daily outlets where there's a lot of space or airtime to fill, that can mean segments of a TV broadcast, it can mean column inches in a traditional newspaper, increasingly it just means digital space. At almost any publication where rapid response breaking news is a key part of the value proposition, the crime beat is often new reporter purgatory. It's probably your first job out of college. You might still be an intern. And your job is to listen to scanner traffic. And when something newsworthy happens, and in this case, I generally mean something salacious happens, you run out and report on it. Or you get to your desk in the morning and you email or call the public information officer at the police department and the sheriff's office and ask if anything wild went down the night before. Sometimes you're just checking your email for a press release that's been sent to you by law enforcement. In one sense, it's journalism on easy mode. The stories literally come to you. And in that sense, it's understandable to put a young reporter on it because young reporters often, you know, it takes time to cultivate sources. But it creates a real imbalance between the journalist and power. And it can also potentially reinforce trauma, both for the source and the journalist themselves. Rebecca's tweet was in response to a tweet by Annie Ma, a Charlotte-based reporter for the Associated Press. Ma wrote, I can't stop thinking about how, for so many reporters, myself included, the late afternoon slash overnight crime shift is your first job. You're often thrown into it with no guidance on how to talk to people experiencing the worst moments in their lives. We can't keep doing that. So the default standard for a lot of media organizations is to quite literally throw a child into the deep end of the pool. Very few journalism schools, and I suspect even fewer newsrooms, offer classes or any sort of education or support on trauma-informed reporting. Val Ogier, our colleague, joined us for this episode as well. Her first gig was also breaking news. And so you're going to hear from two different young reporters how just a few months of doing this job left them feeling extremely bad and left one of them with a PTSD diagnosis. We are giving one of the most emotionally demanding and also interpersonally delicate jobs in journalism, interviewing victims of trauma, to our least experienced and often least supported young professionals. You'll hear Rebecca say she often left a crime scene and thought, my deadline is 9 p.m., I'll cry afterwards. You'll hear them talk about how they each in different ways kind of had to turn off their emotion and their empathy just to get the job done. I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling like we need more empathy in journalism. That's one of the reasons we do the podcast we're doing, not less. And we certainly shouldn't be building into the career path a role that, without proper support, systematically teaches people to deaden their empathetic response. So there's this personal and interpersonal element that's really, really troubling. But there's a public service element that's just as bad. Public information officers are communications professionals. Their job is public relations. The police have a vested interest in telling their side of the story, and they employ public relations professionals to ensure they are communicating to the public, often via the press, with maximum effect. Just to illustrate how important PR is to our local law enforcement, the Spokane Police Department has at least five public information officers. In contrast, the Spokane City Council has one director of communications for all seven council people. It's not exactly apples to apples, but those are both organs of the government who spend a lot of time communicating with the public. And the police department has five times as many communications professionals as the city council. So you're always going to get the law enforcement angle. On the other hand, if these are petty crimes, the reporter might not have access to the accused. And if they do, the accused might not have access to counsel yet. 
if the crime is more serious and that person has counsel, the lawyer is probably not going to want their client to speak to reporters for obvious reasons, some of which we talked about in our Range of Care episode with Inga Laurent last time. In our adversarial system of justice, it is not smart for an accused person to talk to anyone except their lawyer. For most of these kinds of stories, then, there is no one to provide a counterpoint to the law enforcement narrative. And that is just like not good enough especially if we believe a fundamental job of journalism is to hold power to account. Law enforcement is the pointy end of state power. It has the power, the legal authority, to do violence. It has the legal authority to restrict people's rights. They do not have a responsibility to tell us the truth. The Supreme Court's been clear about that. They don't have to tell us the truth about an interaction if it casts them in a negative light. They employ PR people for a reason. Journalists are duty-bound to shine a light on state activities and corroborate the official government account of anything. And that job is especially important when the account is being used as a justification for arresting someone, depriving them of their freedom. This is foundational to the job of journalism. It's like that famous Disney song says, as the sun rising in the east, tailors old as time, Song as old as rhyme. Fact check the police. You remember that? I love that song. Here's the last piece of this, and then we'll get to the interview. Because there's no scanner for courtrooms the way there is a scanner for 911 calls, and there are not multiple public information officers at Superior Court letting reporters know the status of cases, Many of these stories are never followed up on to see if the accused person actually ever gets convicted of anything or even sent to trial. This has always been problematic, but it's even more so in a world where everything lives forever online and a standard background check for prospective employers and pretty much anything else you might need a background check for is just to Google someone. See what pops up when you Google their name. So think of how one stupid mistake, assuming you're guilty or a misunderstanding that never gets followed up on, could end up following someone for years polluting their reputation, damaging their employability, harming their ability to take care of themselves and others, their family. This is serious stuff with such dire consequences. In Rebecca's words, If you choose to cover a murder, then you better be there for when they appear in court. All of this led her to conclude, and honestly, having thought about it for the better part of three weeks now, it's hard to argue that the crime beat cannot be reformed and needs to die at least in its current form. We're going to talk about all of that and more with Rebecca White of Spokane Public Radio. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Rebecca, thank you for coming on the show and responding positively to Luke's Twitter harassment uh, to get you on to range. Luke, do you want to kick things off by telling us why you were harassing Rebecca in the first place? Well, Rebecca, you did something extremely risky that very few people in general, and I feel like even fewer journalists dare to do. You were emotionally vulnerable and self-critical on Twitter. So you posted two tweets that caught our attention immediately, I think because Val and I had been discussing the stuff in the wake of the Uvalde shooting, and then you sort of serendipitously tweeted about it. I So I immediately began haranguing you on Twitter. And <laughs> the first tweet was, there are a lot of crime stories I wrote when I was 22, meaning years of age, that I wish were never published. Interviews I was pressured into getting by deadline, police reports I regurgitated, most of the things I wrote on the crime beat, I don't think really helped anybody. And then after that, on the thread, you did another rare thing where you were critical of the industry that employs you. (laughs) So the follow-up there was, the crime beat shouldn't exist, and at probs shouldn't be in the hands of a newsroom's least supported and experienced workers. At KPBX, where you're currently at, I've tried my best to focus any criminal justice reporting we do on the system itself and not lambasting people named in cop press releases. An editor would love the brevity and concision of those two tweets, but there's a ton to unpack. So maybe we could start with the first. Talk us through being a 20-year-old crime reporter. 
where were you coming from? What kind of writing had you focused on in college? Where was your first crime beat at? And then what was it like being sort of dropped into that? Yeah. So my first journalism job was at when I was 18, my hometown paper hired me to like be a um, like editorial assistant. And Mm. so I learned how to do like records there. And I wrote a little bit, tiny bit of local crime coverage there and then went to WSU where I started at the student paper. I wrote there and edited there. And I did a lot of some like crime beat reporting at the the student paper level, which probably even less good. Um, And then after I graduated, actually even before I graduated, I got an offer from the spokesman to come over to Spokane and start out my career on the crime beat here in Spokane. And I was on the crime beat full time for three months. And then I switched over to being the interim city reporter after that, where I covered the city four days a week and the crime beat one day a week. So, yeah, that was... (laughs) Less than ideal for both sides of that as far as it's really hard to do follow-up coverage one day a week. Yeah. But follow-up coverage on the crime beat is not a great, even if you are the crime reporter five days a week, because there's so much of you like sit next to the crime blotter and you're like, oh, lots of sirens, better go. Um, (laughs) You know. I feel like we're uh, just like living parallel lives. (laughs) Yes, everything is exploding all of the time. And so you don't really have a lot of time to sort of, oh, that guy that I wrote a story about him getting arrested. I wonder if a judge ever made a decision about if he's actually guilty of anything Uh, or if he's like in jail or like the actual follow up. Because when you only do crime stories about people getting arrested, then it doesn't really matter what the justice system does with them after that, because, you know, in print, they're guilty. So (laughs) even if you say allegedly or they were just arrested or they haven't been convicted of anything, you know, I think when people click on it, which is why those stories exist, (laughs) then they just are like, this person did this. And the allegedly's are just like commas and you don't read them. So, right. Um, so I, I want to jump into Val's experience real quick, but just to like for people who don't understand how beats work or don't know maybe like the way the beats get delineated, crime is literally like breaking news where you're like you suggested following scanner traffic. It's not necessarily covering a lengthy trial. It's not like covering the OJ Simpson trial. That's more of like a courts reporter job and city reporting is maybe you can explain what city reporting is and how those things are sort of delineated. In yeah. So City reporting is basically being like a government beat writer. So when I got moved over to the city, I went to all the city council meetings and kind of covered mostly the city council, but just what all city government besides the police department, um, except when the police department had budget issues, was kind of (laughs) when I moved over to city reporting was what I did. And so with crime, I did a little bit of courts when I had time to, to do it. But yeah, a lot of it is just sort of going onto the the scene and waiting for the public information officer to show up in in person tell you you know blah 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 this person allegedly shot this person or there is a break-in or something like that so or just regurgitating emailed press releases that they send to you (laughs) and and oftentimes it's hard to get a second source on that story because the 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 police will put out a press release or you'll you'll be able to go to the scene and talk to a, a public information officer or something but often it's not in the best. Well, actually, this came up in our conversation about restorative justice. It's often whoever the alleged perpetrator is maybe doesn't have counsel by the time you need to go to deadline and maybe not at all. It's also not in that person's best interest, probably from a court's perspective to talk to a reporter and get that stuff on the record, even if they're asserting innocence. So you're, is it fair to say that these are often just the police's side of the story, these stories? I would say absolutely, Um, because, yeah, people don't want to if they've been arrested for something like a lot of times I couldn't get someone on the phone, even if I tried because they're in jail. So uh, it literally cost them money to talk to me or if they were like in prison, too. So like they they couldn't really connect with me, even if I would have wanted to. And like sometimes I remember me or other people would maybe like knock on the doors in a couple of neighborhoods or try to like get in touch with like family members or something like that. But that didn't always go well either. So, <laughs> yeah, totally. So how does how does that parallel your experience uh, down in California, Val? Um, pretty identical. Um, I I graduated college in 2017. Uh, my college paper 
I did a little bit of like crime blotter reporting, but nothing like crazy. And my first job was a news assistant for like a month. And then they made me a full-time reporter because they needed one in this really Mm -hmm. affluent area um, in LA called the Palos Verdes Peninsula. So I was a general reporter there for six months. And so I had a little bit of experience before I went to the Long Beach Post. And they first assigned me the education beat for like half a second. And then they were like, no, we need we need somebody on the crime beat because there's too much crime happening here. Um, And the breaking news editor is just like running around all the time. And so I kind of got thrown in the deep end right away. I was doing shootings. I wasn't doing shootings. I was covering shootings and and (laughs) like a lot of different crime. I, I did cover court cases a lot. That's something that's a little bit different. And that's actually something I enjoyed a little bit more because it was less, I was kind of actually able to hear both sides rather than just the police side. But yeah, I covered a lot of death. Um, I covered a mass shooting and I did that for about two years. While I got like a, I got a lot of guidance from the breaking news editor, who's actually a really good editor. But after two years, I was just burnt out. Um, (laughs) And yeah, we can talk later about the uh, effects that that had on me. Yeah. And how that burns you out but we basically a lot of it was police press releases every morning i would email police and say hey any shootings or deadly stabbings overnight and they would email me back bullet points of information because they were that police department specifically was not very forthcoming with information so um if a fatal shooting happened overnight usually i would head out to the scene and see if I could catch any witnesses or knock on doors, ask people what happened to try to get another side. But um, that was always hit or miss. I didn't cover crime pretty much at all. Later in my career, I did stuff that was more in like policy, uh, like impacts of incarceration, smart justice, a few stories where, you know, that stuff collided and harmed people, generally both the person incarcerated and the victim as well. Earlier in my career, I was writing like music, food and culture features. And I felt the weight of that as like a 20 something like that was a lot to handle the responsibility of like, I remember going to an interview with a kind of like buzzy local band in the early 2000s, a little bit unprepared. The story that resulted wasn't awesome. Uh, I think they were pretty disappointed with it. And I still think about it 18 years later. (laughs) Like I still think about it. Like it's still like in when I'm like going over the lessons I learned as a journalist, like that's still one that comes up for me. and. So it resonated really, really deeply with me, Rebecca, when you had the guts to say that there are a lot of stories you wish you had never published. Because that's that's a big thing to say. That's like a tough, hard, big thing to say. So can you expand on that a little bit and and how you feel about that? So I sent one over of an example and not all of my stuff ran on the web. Some of it only just ran in print because it was a lot of briefs. But Uh, when I think about putting people's full names in especially if it wasn't like a murder or it wasn't um, no one was actually hurt or if even it was like a kind of like goofy crime, uh, if you could call it, you know, some (laughs) of them that are like that. There's no reason to put someone's full name in a story Mm -hmm. if they aren't convicted by a jury. And even if they are, you know, sometimes they people, they serve their time and then they did the, what they were supposed to do and they get out and they maybe get to start over and they're still sort of the internet is forever. And, um, right. you know, they're still sort of, it is all true. It's all, it's all probably true, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not damaging to mm-hmm. you. Um, if you do want to start over or if you are acquitted, um, but we never followed up. So I definitely think that there is some sort of crime briefs that I wrote that I was like, that's not necessary. Those don't need to exist. So I just I wish that I had been a little bit more thinking about those things, you know, when I first started out. But also when you're just kind of like slotted into a system and you don't really know what you're doing and you're just like, well, this is what I think I'm supposed to be doing. And I think this is what I remember from Comp 300, which is like, you know, those early (laughs) journalism classes that (laughs) this was the draft. So I'll do it. Um, And this is what the editors seem to want. So it's yeah. But like thinking a little bit more critically now, I'm like, I don't really think that what if those people really did change? And and now Mm -hmm. if they really do want to apply for a job and then their boss is like, let me Google you really quick. And they're like, oh, when you were 20 years old, you 
robbed a convenience store or something like that. Or were um, accused of it, but it never we got followed up it. on because we don't follow up on crime beat stories. So you yeah. you were accused of robbing the <laughs> store, but we don't know if you actually got convicted. And that, that, that point, I think, that you made, I just wanted to underscore because that's so, so important. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much y'all want to sort of like throw in on this, but it feels to me like crime beat is like, and it's it's human nature. The crime beat is more marketing than actual journalism, in my <laughs> opinion. That's kind of how it feels like to me. Because like the moment if, when there's a siren in my neighborhood, I want to know. Mm-hmm. And like there's like a morbid curiosity, but also like, is am I in danger? Whatever. But then to your point, Rebecca, like what are we what information as journalists are we actually giving with these stories? And what are we actually doing to basically inc- give people a more holistic and true view of the world because even when i think about like when we're there's somebody who's literally dedicated to running down scanner traffic but never following up on it does that give like a a misperception about the amount of crime there is are we actually giving people a true conception of the world and the community that they inhabit with all of us or are we really just sort of marketing is it just marketing for the paper yeah or maybe even you know also marketing for the police department (laughs) Um, instead of for the paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think that like there's like a 2000s era like obsession with clicks at all Mm -hmm. of news organizations that have websites where they're like must get clicks but clicks (laughs) doesn't actually necessarily mean money or you know just because you're getting attention doesn't mean it's good. Uh, So (laughs) but also I, I, I do think that there has been press releases obviously that came out in many stories across America where like the police sent a press release and then like a little more resources are spent looking into what actually happened. And then, oh, it's George Floyd or, oh, it's Mm -hmm. all of those different things. So I think that crime reporting can happen sometimes, but it needs to be crime in courts or criminal Mm -hmm. justice system more than just focus having a dedicated scanner human that does that. You know, like if there's a mass shooting, obviously cover it. And some murders do need to be in the newspaper, but not every single shooting and, and violent thing that occurs in a town needs to I mean, have a yeah. police only yeah, story the, on the, it. The George Floyd press release is still my pinned tweet because like I went <laughs> back and read it a year later and I was like, oh, my God, you know, and I, I, I remember being skeptical at the time. But then really, once the, the brunt of everything came out, it was just shocking to me. So, yeah, you yeah. were going to say something, Val? Yeah, I don't know how y'all do it or how this like the spokesman did it um but like i will say (laughs) the post we did follow up on big crime like we didn't follow up on like a lot of robberies and stuff but after a while we like stopped reporting on robberies as much i think but like we had like a, a court calendar i had to keep up to date that was part of my job was any like murder we wrote about or any like person accused of murder or shooting somebody you know we put it into our calendar and i had to like check every week okay, is there preliminary hearing coming up? Um, Mm. And usually I would go to the preliminary hearings, especially for like bigger cases. And uh, for our listeners, a preliminary hearing is a hearing to see, well, at least in California, I don't know if it's different here. um, Here it's called an arraignment. arraignment. Oh no. So we would go to the arraignment, but then there was like the arraignment and then there was a preliminary, there was like a pretrial and then a preliminary hearing and preliminary hearing was where they, um, the DA had to present their, their case to the judge to see if there was enough evidence to hold a trial. It would usually be granted, but it would be a good, like a good way to actually get information on the, the case that the police wouldn't give us. So I did have to follow up a lot on that, but it was only like one or two people maybe (laughs) like and then also following scanner traffic also you know if if I was going to spend the morning on court or the day in court like my editor had to have somebody else listening to the scanner or he had to listen to the scanner to make sure nothing else was going down so it was really like a resource balance too for us at least well I think I think about this like are we actually giving like preferential treatment to this this information source and recognizing yeah. that we're not even necessarily giving facts? Like I was thinking about this this morning as I was trying to think about what how I wanted to tackle this. Like, is there a role at any newspaper in America where you go every single day and check in with the public defender's office <laughs> to see who's being real? You know, yeah. who's, who thinks there's like a crazy mm-hmm. case where the the prosecutors are really overstepping or somebody shouldn't have been arrested in mm-hmm. the first place? Is that is that a role at any newspaper in America? Not that I know mm-hmm. of, and certainly not around here. Like, 
is there a role where you have to call up the tenants union every day and say, hey, who's being evicted? And is this does this seem sketchy? Like, do we need yeah. to cover this up? Like in some ways, this that would be an interesting beat. I mean, actually, I'm, like, I'm actually this is giving me ideas beat. for potential range beats, to be honest, like just to counter some of that, you know, because mm-hmm. again, like and these are the things that we've talked about ad nauseum on the show over the years. Just getting arrested literally doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And really often when if you're poor enough, taking a plea doesn't even really mean mm-hmm. that you think you're guilty or that, yeah, you got me. It means you need to move on with your life or you're feeling constrained enough by the circumstances that you want to cop to a misdemeanor instead of a felony. Like mm-hmm. there is so much gray that again, back to back to the second tweet now, if we can kind of shift to that, Rebecca, it's like you're like the crime beat shouldn't exist. And I, <laughs> I agree with you. And so maybe unpack that from somebody who's actually done it because like that's it's easy for me to say. Because <laughs> I've never had to do it, but for both of you, like, does does Val, do you agree with that? But then Rebecca, like, what what was what's the deeper piece behind that? Like, as you're thinking through that, like, talk us through, like, why do you think the crime beat should just not exist anymore? Yeah, I think it should be remade into a courts and criminal justice system because I don't think that focusing on individual people who are maybe doing bad things or maybe just caught up in some circumstances, you know, individual people are never focusing on them is never going to change anything for the better. (laughs) Um, And very often, unless you've got like a Larry Nassar or like someone like that, their arrest is not an indication of anything systemic. And so I think that generally focusing on individual arrests, unless they're like big, serious people who get arrested for really bad things that they did over a long time. I don't really think that that really is sort of a watchdog type Mm -hmm. of role, which is what I think journalism is for. But I think that there are a lot of people, you know, there are so many people in our criminal justice system that are elected that don't really get very much scrutiny. All of our judges are elected, our prosecutor, our sheriff, and focusing on the measurables that they do, I think, is more of what a crime or criminal justice reporter should be doing because that's things that people could actually make a difference themselves with that information. And also, you know, like the ProPublica story I sent you looking at the mm-hmm. performance of a judge where she had that sort of special system to arrest kids um, in Tennessee. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, that's that wild. So just like focusing on who you can actually truly hold accountable for the performance of the criminal justice system is, I think, a much better Mm -hmm. use of that human reporting time but that requires a reporter that is experienced which is not who the crime beat goes to Um, (laughs) yeah right because when i did it it was one of those things that like i wanted to get out of it as quickly as possible because i hated it um Mm -hmm. and you know i've always like my first internship was covering the state legislature i wanted to do government reporting but Mm. you can't get hired at 22 doing the kind of reporting that you want to do you have Mm -hmm. to do the reporter, you have to probably cover crime for three months to a year to do what you actually want to do if you can get hired at any newsroom. And so I had to just slog through it until I could switch to a beat I actually liked um, and that I felt I could make a difference doing. And also I was one of those things that I was like learning how to be a professional reporter while covering crime. And I definitely made mistakes and it's just tough because that's such a high stakes place to make mistakes. And it's funny sure. because newsrooms treat it like it's a low stake. I mean, obviously they treat it like it's low stakes because they put the least experienced people there. But like the attitude in newsrooms about it is, oh, that's just breaking news. Oh, that's just crime. Just listen to the scanner and you get stories coming out of it. And it's like, no, this is people's lives that we're messing with. This is people's names um, and livelihoods that we're putting in the paper and well, in the Internet for all eternity and linking them to things they may or may not have done. So it's really bizarre how newsrooms internally treat it. When I think about the, the tremendous power imbalance that that allows, you know, it sounds like it's, it's different in different places. Like uh, maybe your first reporting job, Val was a, the police department was more entrenched and didn't want to talk to reporters or mm-hmm. didn't have the resources to have a bunch of public information officers. But like there are more communications professionals, meaning effectively PR people at the Spokane Police Department than there are in the mayor's office, than there is Mm -hmm. at city council, certainly than there are at the county commission. And the effect of that, and this is this is where experience comes in. And I think about this a lot when we're thinking, you know, 
we journalists think about this a lot when you think about it's not just your experience as a reporter in general. That's a piece of it. It's also your experience in a given community. That's why like institutional knowledge is so vital. And one of the reasons journalism is in perpetual crisis, there are fewer and fewer stable careers where you can just spend your entire life getting to know a city and a beat as well as you possibly can and then retire comfortably. Like That's a systemic problem with journalism that makes the journalism worse. Uh, or makes it harder to do really effective journalism. So when you're a 22-year-old reporter on a crime beat and you're facing down a team of 10 communications professionals, I think there are at least 10 PIOs in the Spokane Police Department, public information officers, sorry, I keep using acronyms, <laughs> and those people have X number of years of experience, that's a tremendous disadvantage for a reporter, especially a young reporter, to do anything other than take their word for it. Or if they push back, they're going to get spun. And if there's a deviation from that line, your editor's probably going to get a call or might get a call, or at the very least, you're going to get taken to task by somebody who is a lot older than you probably, mm -hmm. and who also, you know, is backed up by this team and it's their job to, to do this work. So that to me also feels like a tremendous disservice to young reporters, unless you believe in like the sink or swim, let's just kick the kid in the deep end, <laughs> like version of parenting, you know, or like, you know, mm -hmm. skills creation. I don't know. Do you guys want to like chime in on that or am I just going off? Well, like in in Long Beach, there was a lot of PIOs for the police department and they, they kind of switched off every day. But there was a core team, like probably the whole communications team was 10, but not all of them were like PIOs, I would say, mm. in charge of talking to us. And I remember one would always complain and be like, well, there's so many reporters and there's only one of us or two of us or whatever. And I'd be like, you have all the power. Shut up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like she would complain and I would be like, you're still holding all the cards. <laughs> did you ever feel that Rebecca? Like it's, it's a reporter's job to ask questions of power. And did you ever feel sort of under-resourced and unable to do that in the role as a crime reporter or did it not even really come up because that wasn't the job. It was just like, you know, rewrite the press release or talk to the, the officer at the scene. I feel like just with time resources, I feel like we're always a challenge of like, even if I wanted to, it would be really challenging to like come up with a time to really just really go rounds with, you know, now I've had words with the sheriff several times, but also um, <laughs> it was after a year and a half to two years of experience mm -hmm. where I could sort of, he could say something to me and I could be like, hmm. Uh, so, but when I was like first starting out, you know, when a police officer told me something, I, I'm not from Spokane, I'm from Eastern Washington, but I'm not from Spokane. And so I'd be like, that sounds correct because I don't, <laughs> I didn't really know this community yet. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's one of those things that like, I'm getting to know, I don't have any experience period. And I don't have any experience with this town, period, which I feel like there's so many TV and, you know, young print reporters that they just cycle them through and they're in and out so quick that, like, that's part of the problem of regurgitating press releases is because you really don't know the community itself to really, like, fact check things. And there was definitely times mm -hmm. where when I was covering crime, there was a little bit of institutional knowledge still at the spokesman at the news desk who, if I really was stuck or I was really like, I don't know if that sounds right, you know, I could go and start a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but like, even some of those people are already gone um, now. So I do feel bad for the crime reporters that are starting there now and at so many newsrooms, because really, even if you did have a question or you were like, I need to talk to someone experienced who also knows my mm -hmm. town better than I do, who are you going to go to? <laughs> right. Yeah. I was quite lucky in that like my breaking news editor had been covering Long Beach crime for like five years at that time. So I could always double check things or like I would write something. He'd be like, they really said this? You need to double check on that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'd be like, oh, okay. Five years is good and probably yeah. the most we can expect, but that still doesn't strike me as like super deep <laughs> institutional knowledge. You know, like Bill Moreland yeah. reported on Spokane mm -hmm. for 30 years, you know? Yeah. I mean, at the Daily Breeze, which was my first paper, we had a crime reporter there. I think he was a crime reporter for like 30 years in the same area. And he took a buyout because they had announced like a ton of layoffs right when I started. And when he left, he got like a special city council meeting where they dedicated stuff to him and thanked him. And like the fire department came because he had so much institutional knowledge and he, he was the go to guy. Um, but he also left with 
a shit ton of PTSD and like trauma also. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we, maybe we shift the conversation to that. You were retweeting kind of a a conversation that had been going back and forth. A a woman named Kat Stafford, this is all sort of in response to Uvalde and everything that's happening around that, that mass shooting in Texas. So Kat Stafford says trauma informed reporting should be required training in every newsroom and journalism program. Then Annie Ma, who is with the Associated Press, and this is what who you retweeted, said, I can't stop thinking about how, for so many reporters, myself included, the late afternoon slash overnight crime shift is your first job. You're often thrown into it with no guidance on how to talk to people experiencing the worst moments of their lives. We can't keep doing that. And that's that's the tweet you were responding to, Rebecca. To me there, it's like trauma-informed reporting training benefits both the person going through the worst time in their life, but also there's an impact, there's a toll that this has to take, to your point, Val, about the guy who'd been doing it for 30 years. When you're witnessing the worst acts that people do to each other and people's worst days, like that has a trauma effect on the person covering it. And often I see crime reporters, just reporters in general, sort of the coping mechanism is to numb yourself to human pain, which (laughs) that's not cool either, right? Mm -hmm. So like maybe we can talk about both sides of that, like trauma-informed reporting being necessary for sources and the community you're covering, but also for yourself just to stop from you know, deadening parts of yourself. That should not be a cost of any job is deadening your emotional response to crisis. Yeah, I sadly, there was no, at WSU, when I was a student there at least, there was no trauma-informed reporting class, sadly. Uh, I wish there was. That would have been good. And there was no sort of formal training or, or conversations. Like, I did have an immediate editor that I could go talk to and towards the end of my time the spokesman did help me connect to some like mental health resources. He's still there and I feel like is helping out young reporters when no one else necessarily will. In my three months, you know, I definitely saw blood and a human body. And my one time that I covered a trial was pretty terrible. And I got screamed at by a mother of, of one of the victims about how Maybe if I hadn't been there, the the person wouldn't have been acquitted. Uh, so like oh, it was Jesus. one of those things that like, yeah, so where cool. I was like, I called my mom, you know, on the car home to be like, I can't believe this just happened. I don't know what to do with myself and I have to get back and I have to drive home so that I can write this story because <laughs> I still haven't written it yet. <laughs> and I have to I have to just compartmentalize this so I can write it and then I can go home and collapse afterwards. So that was like, you know, where you just have to, like that was really terrible and I'm very disturbed. But deadline is 9 p.m. and I'll have to cry afterwards. So <laughs> Jeez. Ugh, that just gave me chills. <laughs> yeah, all of that at 20, you know, 22. Yeah. And eventually it all catches up with you and then you know, you do have to actually seek help. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of, you know, where people are like, I do reporters quit after two and a half years. <laughs> Why like that's doesn't a- anyone want the crime beat? That was what editors were asking last time. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> Val, you had to cover a, a mass shooting down in California during the, your mm-hmm. time there. What was that like for you? And and how did you how did you find yourself changed afterwards or how did like how did you navigate the aftermath? Kind of like Rebecca was talking, <laughs> my deadline's mm-hmm. at nine and I'll cry later. Like, how did that manifest for you? Yeah. So um, about two days before Halloween in like 2019, there was a mass shooting at a party. It was like a Halloween themed birthday party. Some guys jumped on a wall and like shot into the party. And I think three people died and 12 people were wounded. So how that happened and it's kind of important to say how I ended up covering that was because my apartment was a few blocks away from that area and I was relaxing in bed. I was like, I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to read Harry Potter and relax and have like a good night. (laughs) And I'm reading Harry Potter in bed and I hear the helicopter going over and hearing helicopters isn't like abnormal in Long Beach, especially where I was at, but it was just hanging out for a long time. And I was like, oh, Okay, I better check. I better check the scanner channels on Facebook and the scanner itself. And so I check in. It says mass shooting. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) And so I get dressed really quick. My husband came home from school and I was like, turn around. There was mass shooting. Like, grab your camera because he's a photographer. Also, um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, we got to go. We had one car at the time. So we went and I, you know, it was like 10 o'clock when I got there. And so I'm talking to witnesses, talking to people, trying to find out what happened. And I ended up staying out there until 
like four in the morning and then the police were like, okay, they kept saying like an update's coming an update's coming. Like they had their little information van out there. And and then finally at 4am they were like, okay, an update's not coming. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And so I, uh, you know, went home, went to bed, but I was just like full of adrenaline. And I woke up a few hours later and I, uh, was like, I gotta do something. Like I, I gotta, I can't just sit here. Like I know, like I could, I was up all night. I could probably take the day off and my editors wouldn't be mad at me. But um, like I got to do something. So I went back to the scene and there was another photographer there and there was a few families there waiting to find out if the people who had died were their family members. And so I ended up witnessing that and, you know, obviously more traumatic for them than for me, but it was like, what am I really doing here? (laughs) Like I'm trying to talk to these people when they're waiting to find out if somebody died, you know, like I wouldn't, you know, the rule in our newsroom was be human first. And that, that was like the guideline. So I always abided by that. And I would not try to like talk to like the mother. I would try to talk to like the sister of the mother or somebody like that, you know, (laughs) but it was still awful. And, uh, I went back to the house where the party was at over the weekend because I was on Saturday shifts too. I talked to the homeowner and he described all of it, you know, to me and it sucked. I mean, I was able to write, like people told me like a moving story about it, but it's still like, I kind of question what did I really do there? And a few months ago, I was actually formally diagnosed with PTSD from that. And then from just all the stuff, other stuff I had to cover. And for about two years, or maybe not two years, like a year and a half after that happened, anytime a helicopter would be overhead at my apartment, I would have to check like, is there shooting going on? Is something happening? Even if it was just there for like five minutes or I would get like a shot of anxiety, like through me when I would hear a helicopter, that was really sucky. I'm well, still dealing with that. Me, it makes me think like, you know, you, you were able to write a moving story, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a, a testament to the reporting and the writing and you did your job well as the job was outlined. But I would be curious to know, like beyond it being moving, like what, what utility did, mm-hmm. did the neighborhood feel like it had? What utility did the people's families feel like it had? What yeah. utility did the community at wide feel like it had? Or was it just sort of tragedy porn you're in you get to have an emotional response to and then forget about and that might also maybe give you a misperception about the amount of crime Mm -hmm. that's happening in in your community i don't know how do you guys feel about that i do agree with that like with the tragedy porn in that specific case um there was a huge misconception in the community in the city that it was a gang shooting and that gotcha which is so wrong but like that the people at the party were in a gang and therefore they deserve to be shot And it's like, first of all, the people at the party were not affiliated with any gangs. Like they really, really weren't. Like I know people say like, oh, they weren't affiliated with gangs, but they really weren't. And it actually came out when they finally solved the case, like two years later, it came out that it was a gang that was shooting at the party, but they, they made a mistake. They were at the wrong house that they thought they were shooting at a rival gang, but they weren't. Um, so it was actually quite important at the time to clarify, like these were just normal people having fun at a party. Not that people in gangs deserve to be shot at, but like, you know, right. But um, is, is that so, something you need? Is that a piece of information you could have even gotten or needed to spend, you know, right. the entire time at the crime scene until 4am right? such that the fact that you can't hear a helicopter without feeling like you need to check scanner traffic, um, mm-hmm. that's a trauma response. Yeah. You know? so, <laughs> yeah. And the, and the ultimate utility didn't come from that kind of reporting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ultimate utility came from talking to the family afterwards like but it was often hard to get to the deeper stories without doing that surface level reporting first that's fair um like you can't get the connection to the family without writing about it and having some of them reach out to you and so that was and it's something that i still grapple with where i'm like what is the the community's right to know like what you were saying earlier am i safe right now what's happening right now like how do we balance that with just not blasting people for no reason, you know? Yeah. How do you think about yeah. that, Rebecca? I, I definitely understand that's how you sometimes meet people is by staking out a situation. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. it's terrible and emotional mm-hmm. and exhausting. And yeah, there's definitely times where I feel like it's going away now more that I'm in radio and we don't really do breaking news at all. Where like, yeah, I'll I'll hear a scanner and then my chest will tighten because, you know, whatever I'm doing now is done and time to go get traumatized. Um, (laughs) Time to go get traumatized. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I, I do definitely kind of get that feeling a little bit too and I feel mm-hmm. like now I'm like what what could I possibly do nothing I do mm-hmm. is going to make a difference by me leaping off and going and taking care of this I don't need to do that but I do sometimes think that that effort to connect to victims families and to mm-hmm. get the real story especially sometimes crimes in poor neighborhoods for example mm-hmm. people have a oh, perception sure. about those victims don't matter or they're a certain type of people and so i do sometimes think there is value in that but i think it just you approached it with clearly more care than i feel like a lot of people <laughs> uh do in those kind of situations because when you're sort of in a very churn model newsroom people like do bad things for content <laughs> so <laughs> well, and like the sad thing is is that i was lucky at that time my newsroom was pretty supportive and there was a little bit more balance it it didn't end up that way like by the end of my tenure as a crime reporter but You know, my newsroom is an online only paper, so we didn't have like a physical paper to fill. There wasn't like a hard 9 p.m. wasn't the deadline. It was like you could go up at any time, you know. And so compared to other crime reporters that were my colleagues at other papers, I was lucky and I still got traumatized and I still got PTSD. And, you know, there was another reporter there that night. and I wonder how she's doing. Um, I know how she's doing. She's in PR now. That sucks that even though I was in a technically better situation than most, it was still bad. I feel like sometimes mentorship is a way to sort of help with that. And that's probably part of the reason that so many like young reporters mm-hmm. are traumatized, not just in crime reporting, but there's so many types of reporting that can like give you PTSD, like reporting on mm-hmm. the all right. And just having a mentor to say, to explain, because also when I like try to explain this, these things to like other people in my life, they do not understand. Yeah. Because they're like, I don't care how talking to people makes you so sad. But like, <laughs> I'm like, no, it does. <laughs> uh, so trying to explain some of these things to people who aren't in journalism is kind of challenging. So just having other people who are like, I've de- I've been there and mm-hmm. this is what I did when it happened to me or this is how I approached that situation is is helpful. Um, but there's like no journalists in their 30s anywhere, um, so, <laughs> at least locally. I feel like of just like Dang. there's just a missing. Yeah. yeah we're, uh, besides you. But like mm-hmm. there's like when I was no, in print, I was 20s. I was. I, when I was at 24, I was one of the more experienced women on my news desk <laughs> at yeah. 24 years old. So being in your early 20s and being the most mm-hmm. experienced person who looks like you is terrible. Uh, and I feel mm-hmm. like it's kind of part of the problem is all people you're talking about your friend being in PR. I considered it actually mm-hmm. because I was like, I'm so exhausted um, just of journalism generally and feel like I don't know if I can do it anymore if I don't get a change in how I'm doing it. And so I interviewed at least one PR job and then was like, actually, I can't do PR. This is also <laughs> terrible. Uh, so never mind. I'm going back to journalism. So, so I, I, I was going to try PR and then I was like, actually, I don't think I could. I can't make myself write this dumb stuff. I don't want to do it. But then like KPBX was hiring. And when I met Doug, I was like, you know, I think that they're going to do things a little bit differently. And they just have a different mm-hmm. approach and environment that, you know, I can sort of be, I can bring forward my ideas about how we should do criminal justice reporting, for example. And Doug will be like, sounds like a good argument. Let's do it. And <laughs> then awesome. we just do it. So That's, you that's know, Doug I, Nad Bornick. Yes. He's a longtime yes. journalist. I, I worked with, he, he worked with me at the Inlander. He was my editor at the Inlander for a, a brief period of time. But he's, he's a guy who's been... He spent his entire career, not just as a journalist, but a journalist in Spokane. And so just back to the whole institutional knowledge thing, the mentorship mm-hmm. thing. And aside, aside from sort of whatever coverage decisions you you make or don't make, like, yeah, that's uh, kind of a, a perfect example of what we're talking about here. Um, when you're talking about journalists in their 30s, um, maybe not in Spokane, but like one of my colleagues at The Post, she covered crime and breaking news in like Orange County for like five or 10 years, I don't know, for a really long time. And she would always tell me without fail, the second you start feeling like nihilistic or like things don't matter, like the story doesn't matter, then get out of the crime beat. Cause, cause you have to, like, you kind of have to like make yourself not care when you're looking at all these horrible things all the time. And so she said like the second you feel like you're not caring about people get out 
And that's what happened to me. Like I, like I started not caring cause I couldn't, like I just physically, mentally could not keep consuming so much death and sadness. And I was like, I, I need to get out of this beat. And then finally they moved me to social media <laughs> cause I liked <laughs> community building. So <laughs> I got lucky again there, but you know, it's, it's kind of sad that that's what that job does to you. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe as a way of winding this down, we, we sort of touched on things a little bit as we've gone along, but like, what would we do as an alternative to crime reporting? And in the instances where there is a true utility for covering breaking crime, you know, in that sense, like what, what can we do to make it better for both the people we're covering and the people doing the covering so that maybe this, you know, there are a million and one reasons that reporting is a burnout profession. Like what are the ones we can control and what can we do to make it so that it's not like trauma at least is the reason people are breaking out. I, so I heard you say, Rebecca, not publishing people's names when they've only been accused or arrested or whatever. And that's, the, the, you know, there's a place where you can, the public utility of that is like, again, if there's sirens in my neighborhood and a, a helicopter overhead, and I have a legitimate like concern about is somebody on the loose, what's happening? All you have to report in that scenario is there was a suspect and they have been apprehended, right? Like that's that serves the uti- the momentary utility of I'm feeling potentially unsafe and I would love to have the information about that. But then uh, you also suggested like don't publish mugshots, which seems pretty obvious. Well, yeah. Like what other ideas do we have? That's yeah, that's something that a lot of newsrooms have finally just stopped doing. Right. Mostly in Washington was- state <laughs> mugshots, you can't get them. They mm-hmm. don't publish them here, but like in Idaho, they still do. Right. And, and I think some news organizations, you know, definitely publish mugshots all the time. Yeah. Uh, oh, they know. only in California, I think they only, or at least in Long Beach, they only did it if it was like, has anybody else been hurt by this person? Uh, even that is kind of prejudicial though, too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, when did you stop beating your wife? <laughs> uh, um, But I think like, giving all reporters even like not just breaking news or crime reporters trauma-informed reporting training like let's work that into our curriculum and journalism school let's work it into base training when you start in a newsroom let's develop a curriculum if it's not already developed <laughs> and make it uh universal i think it's pretty an easy thing i know some schools like i think mizzou does that mm-hmm. um but not everybody goes to, yeah. you know, a accredited, traditional, expensive journalism school. Like, I feel like at WSU, it is journalism school, but that doesn't, there's no base that everyone does. So I feel like some of that has to be a newsroom responsibility yeah, sure. and a part of their onboarding process that they say, this is trauma-informed reporting. And also you, reporter, if you struggle with mental health or PTSD Mm -hmm. issues. Here's some resources that are free to you. Because even if you don't cover crime, just the amount of hate that I would sometimes receive as a young reporter working in regular print journalism was pretty overwhelming sometimes. And the constant emails to my inbox that you're a terrible bad person. And like the one time I covered the Proud Boys, the wave of harassment and the attacks on my personal social media. So I just think general, whether you cover crime or anything, newsrooms need mm-hmm. to sort of keep their people physically and mentally safe. Yeah. yeah for and sure. not just be like, hey, our insurance also covers uh, therapy. So go figure that out. Like, cause that, that was Once kind of the, that was the support <laughs> that I got was like, hey, we, we actually have therapy in our insurance and go do that. But there's also a wait list to get a therapist, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. There or wasn't if really... you work, if you work, one of the job offers I got when I graduated was for mm-hmm. like a smaller newsroom that would have paid me like a minimum wage and like mm-hmm. health insurance was sort of, but not really. Totally, so yeah. like mm-hmm. the, the smaller the newsroom, the worse the benefits and the less the support and the less the mentorship. Cause Absolutely. I've, I've had some of my, Friends from college, most of them who aren't in journalism anymore because it was terrible, they went to smaller dailies or weeklies than me and had worse benefits. So it was much harder for them to get support. And it's a lot harder for you to like mentally take care of yourself when you're worried about money at home, too. Of course. So paying reporters better. Yeah. Where you're like, (laughs) goodness, I'm traumatized, um, but I can't think about my trauma because I'm worried about paying rent. Uh, So. So Maybe we could unpack, and then this is where we we end with. Maybe this will give us the hope that we always look for at the end of our depressing episodes. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> you you sort of suggested that more like more of a court beat or a, a criminal justice beat um value or sort of we were chatting offline about a public safety beat like what does it look like to do responsible efficacious reporting about public safety stuff in our community that isn't tragedy porn that isn't traumatic but still gets people the information they need maybe start with you rebecca i am a reporter still because i believe in accountability and i believe that is the ultimate goal of everything that i do and sometimes you know you have to fill your broadcast space with things that matter less but generally <laughs> if i'm going to cover crime it's going to be you know looking for a flaw in the in the system or or some sort of problem that needs fixed, not like an individual incarcerated person or person who's been arrested. So I sent over an example of that initiative to decriminalize possession. I think that lawsuits against the criminal justice system, any component of it, are fair game and absolutely should be covered. There's been a lot of coverage about that lawsuit against the jail for the overwritten camera footage. Right. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that I noticed was the woman was arrested and she was in jail for drug possession and she died in jail for drug possession, which currently in Washington state, if she would have was arrested for that now, she probably wouldn't have been in jail. She may still be alive. So right. our, our simple like drug possession that, law was basically struck down by the state Supreme Court. This woman who died should not have been arrested in, yeah. in so current just, days. Yeah. Like looking at those sort of situations where there is some thing that was missed and that somebody needs to be held accountable in the system, someone with the power. <laughs> so looking, I guess, focusing your criminal justice reporting on the people that have the power. I think another example of, you know, the Inlander uh, Sam Wolfile's recent story and look into the medical examiner deaths, I think is a really good use of criminal justice resources is really taking a look at those deaths and reaching out to those families who want to talk to the media because they have been waiting so long for, for justice. So I think that those are where people should be spending the bulk of their resources. And I do think that some real-time crime daily reporting should happen, because I think that's in important just to keep you familiar with the process, but it should never happen without follow-up. So if you choose to cover a murder, then you better be there for when they appear in court. And yeah find out who their defense attorney is. And I, I really liked Luke's idea earlier about checking in with the public defender's office, either rather than or in addition to checking in with the police department. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me. But also court reporting, it, it can still be damaging and traumatizing, but it's a little bit more controlled, I feel. And there's a little bit more on like the systematic stuff that you can report on um, while court reporting. That was at least my favorite part of the crime beat, following things in court. Courtrooms are where both judges and prosecutors have a tremendous amount of discretion over what, you know, um, what's the name of that website? I'm going to need to look it up. There's basically a, a website that breaks down using public records, the charging statistics for individual mm -hmm. judges all the way down to at least superior court level, maybe even lower. So like you can go just sort of trolling through and see that this judge tends to you know, basically throw the book at everybody who comes in for, and you can break it down by crime too. So specific crime. Ah, mm -hmm. y'all, Luke from the future. I just spent an hour digging up the name of this website, could not remember it and got bailed out by a friend at the 11th hour. I was just about to give up. It's AmericanEquity.org. Check it out. I'm sure you'll find it interesting if you listen to this podcast, maybe kick them a few bucks as a donation. It's a nonprofit. All right, back to the show. And in there, you see just a, an incredible amount of variation which to me points out that like we need more eyeballs on what happens in those courtrooms. I can't remember who told me this. Oh, but it might have been Ryan, our friend Ryan Pitts, who works at Open News, talking about how literally just having somebody in the room witnessing will change the behavior what's happening in that courtroom. I've seen that happen. Yeah. I've, I've made that happen. Like, You've been the person yeah. sort of, yeah. I've been the person. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. Um, back to your point, Rebecca, about like the watchdog element. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and those are places where if it is bad enough, the, the crime is serious enough, you can maybe make connections with people there that you would want to do for follow up reporting. You don't have to be at a crime scene until four in the morning to make those connections. <laughs> and uh, I will share a story. I just want to share a story real quick about when court reporting revealed something uh, a little bit more systematic. One time I was in court 
for the preliminary hearing from, I think, a murder case or a shooting. I'm not sure. And while I was waiting for it, there was a hearing for a teenager. And I was like kind of half paying attention because it wasn't the case I was there for. But then all of a sudden I heard threatening a school shooting. And I was like, wait, what? I haven't heard about anybody threatening a school shooting recently at all. And so I was paying attention and then the judge dismissed the case and said, yeah, we realized that this was wrong. And so the family, the quote unquote suspect left and then my case ended up getting delayed anyways. And so I ran out to the hallway and I stopped a woman who was talking to the boy and I was like, hey, I'm a reporter. Can you tell me what happened and what that case was about? And she was like, oh, yeah, she was a school therapist and the the quote unquote suspect um, was a nonverbal autistic like 18 year old. Oh, wow. And he had like emailed somebody at the school about a school shooting, but it was because he was worried about a school shooting that was threatened at the local university. And so he was like trying to warn his friend, but he's nonverbal and writing is not his strong suit. And his family doesn't speak English um, <laughs> or much English. And so it was totally misconstrued. And the police just threw the book at him. And arrested him for threatening a mass shooting. The people at the school who work with him are like, no, 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 no. Like, he's, he wasn't doing that. Oh. <laughs> like, he was trying to say something else. And then, thankfully, the judge and the prosecutor ended up throwing it out. And I got to write that story where I was like, why are the police trying to throw a book at a nonverbal autistic man? Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so that was just me sitting in a courtroom and, like, stumbling on right. that story. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've made a difference in that way, but I feel mm -hmm. like definitely I have been frustrated when I've been in courtrooms by how controlling or not controlling, you know, how somehow judges are like, everyone in my courtroom will do this or won't do this or just that, those sort of really subjective yeah. rules or like, if I see your phone out in court, you're kicked out, <laughs> whether it's silence, whether it's off or no mm -hmm. recording or anything like that. So I definitely have been like frustrated watching judges sort of do things but also you know not necessarily in in court cases but when i was the county government reporter which i feel like just having a county government reporter existing period i think does also help criminal justice as uh, well yeah. because county commissioners do whatever they want in mm -hmm. all 39 counties with little to no oversight yeah. uh mm -hmm. so <laughs> and nobody pays attention to them even though they control every county jail in the state yeah. Jeez, and yeah. so i couldn't handle like criminal justice reporting I felt like I could really make a difference as a county reporter, you know, every time a county commissioner was like, jail? <laughs> just asking like, well, well, what do you mean? <laughs> so I'm just asking why or just questioning your county commissioners on, on the regular really does make a difference mm -hmm. when it comes to criminal justice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I feel like there's different ways to make a positive impact. And so now I'm a general assignment reporter. And I also, I'm a host, so I can't just report all day, every day, like I used to be able to. Mm -hmm. But I feel like sometimes I do just call into public meetings and then just me being there and then them knowing who I am does change things. So I would say that too, of keeping track of who makes the decisions that can get people killed in jail and just really paying attention to them. But as far as like people doing it right with criminal justice, I love everything that ProPublica does and their style of criminal justice reporting, I think really is pretty makes pretty tangible changes. I really like what Investigate West has been doing with the hiring of Wilson and just letting him loose on the criminal justice system, I think will change things for the better <laughs> because, you know, what he was doing at the Inlander, which I also thought was mm -hmm. good, he can do on a bigger scale now. And I think what the Inlander has been doing over the last several years of their approach to really taking a deeper look at some of these cases, like, for example, the Eastern State Hospital, the woman who was murdered in a domestic violence murder, some of the background on that case, for example. I think that they've done a really good job about teasing those out. And there are some writers mm -hmm. who are a little more experienced at the spokesman that I think have been trying their best in that environment to take deeper looks when they have time to. So. I do see hope in that there are reporters out there doing that work right now who are not burnt out, hopefully, and are still really passionate about this. 
Well, that's awesome. Again, thanks for the candor and the vulnerability to do that on social media so that where we all could see it and have the idea for this topic, but then also just coming <laughs> on and, and chatting so open-heartedly with us about this stuff. It's really, really appreciated. And I think hopefully one of the things we aspire to do at, at Range, and um, hopefully this gets bigger over time as our audience grows, is just helping people understand the people who do journalism and the systems that have been built up around journalism in ways we can improve those as well. Because I think it's such a vital community interest thing and it's been struggling for a really long time. And I think we're fortunate in Spokane that we have a more robust media ecosystem than a lot of cities our size. And there mm -hmm. are still massive problems besides that. And burnout and stuff is a, is a huge piece just as much as like what we choose to cover at a more of a systemic mm -hmm. journalistic systemic level. So conversations like this, I think are, are vital and I hope, hope you had fun, uh, whatever that means, <laughs> but also, uh, hope you found it good too. I mean, it's always good to hear other people have similar experiences. Mm -hmm. So I don't really feel alone because <laughs> I have met other reporters, but you know, I'm, I'm thank you for sharing and I'm, I'm glad to also share. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks again to Rebecca for joining us. The last thing I want to say and it's easy to get depressed about the state of the world. I feel like I spend most of my time depressed about the state of the world. But if journalism is the watchdog of an informed society, and you have young journalists like Rebecca and Val really looking critically at not just power, but the way the watchdog institutions who are supposed to hold power to account relate to power, then that really, it honestly gives me hope. The point of this isn't to dunk on specific organizations, but to hopefully get all of us really thinking critically about our practices. If we empower these badasses rather than breaking them with their very first assignment, I honestly think we'll have a better world for it. This episode of Range was produced by Val Ogier and me. Stephen Smith edited the interview. If you like what we're doing here, killing sacred cows, placing a critical lens not just on state power, but the way media covers state power, help us become a sustainable, member-supported organization by becoming a paying member. It's extremely simple. Just go to rangemedia.co and click subscribe. At $10 a month or $100 a year, it's pretty dang affordable. But if you can't afford it, don't worry. We do not and never will paywall our content. And another great way to support us that everybody can do, whether you're a paying member or not, is just telling your family, your friends, and even your enemies to check out Range. All right, that's it for us. We got a barn burner coming up next time. We're probably going to be a two-parter. I already recorded it. It's in the can. I know how good it is. It's good. And that's all I'm going to say. Till next time, everyone. Have a great week. Bye. Please just give me one more chance, one more take. I can get it. Ah, fine. Do you know how much this orchestra is costing me per minute? One more chance, but blow it again and you're fired. Take it from the top, everyone. As the sun Rising in the east Tale as old as time Song as old as rhyme Fact check the police My god, that's embarrassing. It'll have to do, though. That's a wrap, everybody. Yes, I knew it. Just had to believe in myself. I need a drink.